Good. So welcome and to our <clears throat> Bible study, which is, as things currently stand, the last in our current series. Uh, because we have reached uh, now chapter 11 of Genesis, and, and this current Bible study series is on Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Uh, if we decide to do 12 to 50 late, uh, next or later, that's another matter. But this is this is as far as we've got uh, so far. And uh, <laughs> we will do that in a minute, but we'll open first with prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your gracious goodness and kindness towards us in our creation, in our preservation, and above all, in the revelation of your grace and of your will in your word. Please guide us now as we study your word, uh, that we would understand what we read, understanding it, believe it, and believing it also live our lives in accordance with it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last time we uh, looked at the uh, origins of the nations in chapter 10, uh, the descendants of uh, Noah's sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and how the various nations that were known to the ancient Israelites, at least, uh, how they had their origin in relation to the uh, three sons of Noah. One of the things I didn't mention last time, but I thought I mentioned at the beginning, is that if you count all the all the names there, the can any well somebody guess how many names are listed in chapter ten? Forty. No, more than forty. Really? Must be about ninety. Bit less than that. Eighty. Seventy. Oh. And the reason I mention that is, is significant is that of course when uh, Jacob goes to Egypt. The number of his entourage is 70. 70. And later on, many much, much later on, uh, when Jesus uh, sends out his, uh, some of his disciples uh, ahead of him uh, to preach uh, the gospel uh, while he is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, he was the reading this morning in, the, in our morning devotion. The number of those disciples was? 70. You had it, 70. So... Uh, <clears throat> These numbers um, are, are always significant, and we should therefore be seeing a link between uh, the, uh, if you like, the, the number of the nations that uh, descend from Noah, the number of descendants of Jacob, and then later on the number of preachers sent by Jesus. And perhaps we'll have a bit of time to think about that at the end of our study today. But I thought I'd just plant that as a thought at the very beginning of our study and if you have some clever ideas about it uh, you've got a, a few minutes to brew them and to perfect them uh, before uh, we uh, discuss it further as we now begin our chapter 11 uh, i'd also like to uh, as a, a prefatory comment uh, mention the fact that avril asked a question last week about the the confusion of languages and and when exactly the different languages uh, cropped up and we will have to answer that question today I hadn't forgotten. So, therefore, uh, let's go straight in and uh, read the first nine verses, please, on the very uh, the usual first come first served basis. I'll do that if you like. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which your children of man have built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Mm, thank you very much. Um, other than the question that uh, I've already referred to from last week, has anyone got any questions or comments uh, about uh, this very famous um, passage in the Bible? I don't think anyone can get through very long uh, or survive very long in Sunday school before they come across this story. Um, so any, any initial questions uh, or comments about what we've just heard? Well, this is a bit strange, isn't it? to decide to change all the languages all over the world because um, that's, it, that's where it, go on. it would muddle everybody up because one person wouldn't know what the other one was saying. That's precisely the purpose of it. But we will discuss that as we come to it. But yes, that's, that is exactly the point of it. Hmm. <laughs> Any, anything else? Anyone else? Um, what jumps out at me is verse 4 talks about um, the people says, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So it's like people want to build up uh, and it's us in the plural. And then God seems to say in verse seven, come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language. So it's like a um, direct, direct opposite of God coming down and it's, it's in the plural. Yep. Very good. We will definitely touch on that too. Yes. Or touching that might be an understatement. We will discuss that at length. Anything else? So I suppose the tower didn't get finished. It didn't. There is some uh, very, um, a slightly, very lightly disguised uh, irony in this passage about it, in fact, the Tower of Babel. If there are no further comments or questions to begin with, then we'll, we'll let's go to, to the beginning. So the, the whole world had the whole earth had one language and the same words, or you could I mean what do you mean and the same words, what does that mean? Uh, same meaning to what they were told. Well, it's it's a sort of idea, it's a sort of way basically they that people understood one another. Uh, there's one language and the words were used in the same way. Uh, you, you know the old saying about um, <clears throat> Britain and America are two languages separated by a common ocean and a common language. Correct. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, the 
In fact, the, the famous um, uh, Broadway musical song, um, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, I Say Tomato, You Say Tomato, isn't in fact about British and Americans, it's about the upper class, uh, upper class Americans and, and sort of Midwestern Americans, uh, sort of New England, oh, it's New England or, or at least East Coast versus Midwest. But uh, nevertheless, this idea that uh, sometimes language can in fact confuse uh, and uh, separate. I've in, witnessed in my lifetime a few occasions where people have assumed that the words in different places mean the same thing with disastrous uh, effects uh, and a great embarrassment. So the idea is it, you could almost like say they have the same language in the same dialect or the same pronunciation or same, you know, same, same way of speaking. The purpose obviously being, ob you know, I hope it's obvious, uh, that people understood each other. Um, now, how does this link uh, to what we read in the previous chapter, where we had this dispersion of nations? Uh, first of all, uh, these two things belong together. We have throughout Genesis uh, up to this point had these uh, sequences of events which are linked to one another, where you have something that is related positively in a sense, this is what happened. And then it's followed by how it went all went wrong. We got Genesis one and two, God created the world, Genesis three, you got the four. Genesis four begins with the birth of Cain and Abel. And very quickly, we end up with the um, uh, murder of uh, Abel by Cain. We have the, the, uh, the growth of humanity, uh, which is then uh, to which to which corresponds the the um, marriage with the so-called so sons of God and the, and the whole corruption of mankind leading to the flood, and so on and so on. Um, the, you know this this is sort of common common theme. So the light and dark is black and white, and here likewise we in in chapter twelve we simply have a a list of of the if like the growth of the various nations from the descendants of Noah's sons, without any judgment. This is just how it was. And now comes the counterpart. If you like, this is again another fall narrative. How how it all goes wrong uh, for um, for for the nations of the world, so that in a sense you could say, just like Genesis one gives us a cosmic view of creation, light and darkness, um, uh, water and dry ground. You've got uh, sky and earth. You've got uh, the um, uh, you know, sun, moon, and stars. You've got, you've got the kind of the, the, the whole shebang, the whole whole of creation uh, being placed there in one, uh, in one, <clears throat> on the one hand, and then you've got um, Genesis two, which gives uh, and and three, which kind of zooms in on the detail, not of the whole world, but of the bit that actually mattered, the 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 like the explanation of why that which God created has ended up being the thing in which we actually live now. So we get the creation of Adam in, and then his place in the garden and the fall as a kind of zooming in. And likewise, in chapter 10, we had this, if you like, the, the, the broad brush, large scale. These are, these are all the different nations that came out, uh, descended from Noah's uh, sons. And now what we have in chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, is we get the kind of Genesis 2 treatment or Genesis 2 and 3 treatment where we focus in on if you like the 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 actual cause of the dispersion in itself, so those two things they, they, we ought to read them together and in parallel, 
and remembering to uh, just a few things. Remembering first of all that Genesis, this Genesis narrative, is not given to us uh, in order to satisfy the curiosity of uh, post-18th century historians or people like ourselves who have grown up in a world that, in a kind of understanding of the past, that is very much filtered through the kind of modern historical narrative. Let's find out what exactly happened. That wasn't. That's simply not the way uh, that uh, the kind of ancient cultures thought about the past. Um, I saw recently a a, uh, a little um, uh, cartoon drawing of uh, an ancient historian uh, in conversation with a modern historian. The modern historian says, you know, <clears throat> kind of says, you know, I have consulted all the exi- all the rem- uh, existing. Uh, written sources compared them and, and interviewed all the and now have figured out what happened. Um, and here are all the possible exceptions to you know what, you know things that are uncertain. And the ancient historian said, "Oh, um, I, you know, my great grandfather once met a man who had a dream, who, and in that dream he told us what happened, and here's what happened." You know that kind of completely different approach to uh, what what really is important about the past. And so the Bible doesn't satisfy all our kind of historical questions because it's not interested and it's not important for our salvation. Um, and that's why also we've got these sort of very broad canvases like chapter 11 and then these very specific things without necessarily explaining to us in very great detail exactly how it is that these two things join one another. And we kind of, we're kind of left, if we want those answers, those modern, modern kind of answers, we are kind of left a little bit dissatisfied because we don't get the answer. What really matters here is what it is that causes it, not how exactly these two things link together. What is it that causes the dispersion of the nations? What is it that, you know, from, from God's perspective, that, if you like, leads him to desire the dispersion, dispersion of nations? That's the, that's the big question. And, here's the, and here is our answer. And the answer is just like before, the answer is human sin. Okay, there are two. Basically, do you know the old saying that the two, um, the two um, factors that drive the stock market are fear and greed. Oh. Fear and greed; those are the two things. You know, greed. Greed wants to make more. Fear doesn't want to lose anything. And between those two kind of monsters, the stock market moves. Well, the Bible because you know, it works between two. There are two two things that cause the world to things to things to happen in the world. Uh, divine grace and human sin between divine grace god's grace and human sin pretty much everything that happens is explained by those two factors and here again we see that that the human sin and the and the human the original sin which persists in generation to generation again uh, causes the world to become the way that it is so let's have a look at that um as people migrated from the east, uh, it says one uh, translation, and now it says, as men moved eastward. So you've got uh, two uh, exactly opposite translations um, of, the, of the same text. Uh, it's, uh, quite, I think, quite a probably the most uh, literal, um, you know, well, uh, it, one, one way of translating would be that peop- uh, that's as um, p- 
people uh, journeyed in the East. Uh, and, you know, different translations have taken a slightly different way of looking at it. But East, remember, uh, where, where have we encountered the word East before? Well, um, before Christ, when Christ was born, the star in the east. It doesn't get this through the wise men from the east, but what about before this point? In, in Genesis 3, 24, um, so when God drove out uh, Adam and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden so that that's where Adam went. He went. He went east. He went eastward. Yes. And in uh, in kind of again Old Testament thinking, east is often and and generally actually in in the kind of what we call the ancient Near East, the kind of uh, western or eastern shores of the Mediterranean, and uh, and many of the nations around the Mediterranean at the time considered the east to be a place, if you like, a somewhat uh, intimidating and dark place of. Of, of strange things uh it was exotic like like many for many of us still today we think of we have to go a bit further now these days to find things exotic you have to go to china and and japan and things but you know the east is considered to be kind of place of of, of threat but also of, of the strange and the exotic um but yes the east is kind of away from it's the direction away from uh eden and uh if you're thinking in terms of the, your world kind of being one one end of your world is the Mediterranean Sea, then you are at the western extremity in that sense. So anything east is away from the promised land as well. So there's this east, east movement in the east, uh, and they and whether it's to or from the east, it's you know the, the idea is that they are they are in the east of presumably where. Uh, where they ought to be. In other words, it's, you know, this not again. It's not located specifically. It's the east of what? It's just the east. Uh, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so, can I ask, sorry, can I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think these people are all the people in the world, or is it just a, a migration group of people? You know, nomadic people that the Lord seems to be focusing on. Um, it's not uh, it's not absolutely specific but the implication is that these are other people um, I mean again it, you know, it's, it doesn't say people or men in the text it says, as they so when it says the whole world had one language and the same words and as they migrated in the east, or as they as they journeyed in the east, literally. Mm. So it, it kind of implies a unity yeah. of 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 nations, but it, as I said, it doesn't particularly uh, specify here. We are we are dealing. We, remember, this is the if you like the this is this is primeval history. Still, we are kind of we are in kind of misty and murky uh, vistas. We you know things are very imprecise. Yeah. This is very long long ago. It's essentially. Prehistory. This is re history that's been related uh, after the fact, but we have no records from that time. Yeah. Um, 
and so you know the east uh, so, so the, yeah so the, these are here in in the plains of uh, uh, Sheena, uh which we uh, encountered uh, in uh, chapter 10 uh, and if you uh, I don't come if you, if I if we discussed it but basically nobody's we, we don't really know where that is. We do know something, though, and we, we'll, we'll know this from in just a moment. We come across the term Babel, uh, which is not that different from uh, Babylon. And we know from uh, extra biblical, so outside the Bible, we know that the, early, the, the place in the Middle East or the Near East that where uh, civilization first really emerged in a, in a significant way was Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia being a Greek word meaning between the rivers, which is the rivers of Tigris and Euphrates, which run roughly parallel through what we now call Iraq. And because it's on the two big rivers and the plain between them is a flood plain, it's a muddy old place and therefore is very fertile because it floods it flooded regularly, very fertile. And because it's fertile, it was, it was uh, suitable for agriculture because suitable for agriculture, it also therefore saw the development of uh, towns and cities and and trade so long as people don't farm but they hunt and gather and collect their food uh, there is neither a need nor advantage to living in large communities and there's certainly no need whatsoever for any large-scale trade they'll ask large-scale trade the moment you settle down to agriculture you begin to deal with people having somebody having a surplus and somebody else having not enough and, and, and specialization skill. And so the development of towns and cities and so on, uh, all of a sudden become, you know, sort of emerges. And, and it emer one of the places where it emerges is Mesopotamia. So possibly Shinar, I would say, probably Shinar is somewhere in that sort of region. And so we're, there we are, we're in Lane Shinar, and they said to one another, uh, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, let's so, start with that. So, does anyone, is it, did anyone pick up on the uh, irony or almost sarcasm in verse three? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of rather, it's a snooty tone to this verse. Do you pick up on it? Anyone? They had brick for stone, as opposed to what else might you have for stone? Stone. Yes, stone. See, if you had brick for stone, and you had bitumen for mortar, as opposed to Mortar. Mortar for mortar. You're on fire. Very good. Um, no, so instead of having stones and mortar, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. What do you think is being implied here? There wasn't a lot of stone. Well, that might be the reason, but why, why is the author saying this other than it just, you know, what's, the what's, what's being implied about these people? They're clever. They could have done better. Yeah, this isn't exactly kind of first class stuff. It is a bit like, you know. They're being lazy. 
I, actually, the, the reality is that if you, if you go, if you, if if I'm correct and it's in Mesopotamia, then you will have a shortage of stone because it's muddy. And if you're muddy, if you've got lots of mud, you make bricks rather than quarry stones. Mm-hmm. But it's not about laziness. It's basically about the quality of the stuff with which they're building. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like saying they had pine for oak. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's not quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So this is the best they can do. Of course, we come across brick later on. There's one other place in the Bible that is really interesting in brick. The Egypt, the Israelites as slaves. Yeah, that's what the Israelites make in slavery in Egypt. So again, it's not impl- explicit, but there's an implicit kind of, oh, you know, this, if you're reading this as an Israelite later on, so that, that ring of bricks, that rings a bell. Uh, not exactly associated with the most glorious and, and God-fearing people in the world, these brick people, are they? You know, you've got the Egyptians, and of course now you've got this lot here. And they said, again, come let us build ourselves a city. Now, we've had a come let us before, or let us before here. What, where did we have let us, let us anything in, in Genesis thus far? Rather significantly. Let us fill the earth with animals and fruits and stuff. No, he's asked that not quite. Genesis 1 26. Then God said, Let us make man. Let us make man in our image. So God has made man in his image. The image of God has been uh, damaged, destroyed, marred by human sin. And now we have. let us make let us make and you kind of see the kind of this is where let us make bricks they make bricks for stone you know it gives an indication of the quality of workmanship that's about to come out of these people uh and now, now let us build ourselves a city and a tower and let us make a name for ourselves mm. let us make a name for ourselves and herein lies the rebellion it's not, I mean, it's, it's not let's forsake God <coughs> explicitly, but they say we are going to make for us and they make a name for ourselves as opposed to having the name that God had given them. You know, having been identified as the people of God, they're now going to make a name for themselves. And this is no different from what the serpent tempted Eve with. You can be like God. And this is this is now the let's be like God moment. Let's be a God to ourselves. Let's make ourselves of what we, you know, of ourselves, what we want to be. Let us make, you know, let us uh, establish our own fame. And this is undoubtedly the ongoing rebellion, the ongoing tr- uh, of uh, um, sin of mankind. This this desire to make something of ourselves, not to be content with what God has made of us, not to be content with the name that God gives to us, but to make a name for ourselves and be that, you know, whatever it is it, that, that we want to be. This is exactly where all the trouble in the world lies, both on a big scale 
And this is why people want to establish empires. This is why, you know, uh, Alexander the Great goes and decides, I'm going to conquer the world. And he founds a load of cities and they all call Alexandria. <laughs> and that, that's, you know, some people get to do that. Napoleon go to, to, tries to take over the whole of Europe and wherever he conquers a kingdom, he takes one of his nephews or brothers or somebody and makes them the, or one of his generals and says, you be the king here. Uh, and when he was crowned, in, you know, he, he placed the crown on his own head. <laughs> Let us make a name for ourselves. That's what the great, the, all the people who are called great in history, who usually you only get to be get get to be called great if you manage to be really bloody and, and tyr uh, tyrannical like Alexander the Great or Peter the Great. Um, whereas, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's one of the, um, just a little footnote, one of the great ironies of Russian history, for example, that uh, uh, you've got people like Peter the Great who, you know, estimated 100,000 people died building a city called St. Petersburg, modest man that he was. So he, he gets to call Peter the Great the last Tsar, under whose rule probably fewer people were killed by the Tsar than anybody else in the history of the Tsars, he gets his nickname is Nikolai the Bloody. I mean, that's just one of those, <laughs> one of those sort of unfair uh, uh, details of history. But this is also true of ourselves, you know, of individuals. The reason why we rebel against God is that we don't actually want to be the kinds of people that God wants us to be and God made us to be. We want to be the sort of people that we want to be. And it's one of the um, well-meaning but potentially very dangerous things in, um, in the way that uh, education uh, in the West, generally speaking, uh, works. There's been a great emphasis since the 60s on high self-esteem and individual value and worth and all those things, which can be a really good thing. I, I, I'm... I'm not a proponent of low self-esteem. I don't think that children should be made miserable and, and, and feel like they're nobody and, and without value. But the way that it often expresses itself is this sort of idea that you, know, you, you can be whoever you want to be or you know, don't let anybody tell you, you know, kind of take away your dreams. What, you know, and, and we kind of, the, the, the key point becomes that we all must be able to make of ourselves what we are and we decide who we are and and the and the, the latest iteration of it the latest version of it is this this uh bizarre thing that has erupted in our culture in the last couple of years where now you get to identify as whatever you think you are doesn't matter who you what you were born as you 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 tell us you know what are your pronouns or you know do you, you know how, how do you identify yourself and that now becomes the key thing and, and therefore, we, you know, we, it's just the latest version of exactly the same sin that serpent, the serpent dangled before Eve and the trap into which every generation has stepped ever since. It's like, how many of you have seen the film um, The Groundhog Day? Oh, several times. That's, <laughs> that's ironic. Why? Is it the same every time? It's the same every time, but he knows, yeah. No, no, I, I was just, no he, he changes it as he I, goes along. No, my point was, is, is the film the same every time you watch it? Um, of course it is. I'm just sorry. Ignore that. Just a silly joke. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the, you know, the, and, you know, the chap you know, lives the same day again and again and again. And one of the things is that he, you know, for the first umpteen times, he steps into the same puddle every time. Mm. But the difference between Groundhog Day 
and real life is that uh, eventually he, he learns to avoid it. Humanity hasn't learned that trick yet. And so the, this self-regard, who am I? And, and our culture, Western culture, since the 18th century has essentially founded itself on this idea of uh, the, uh, the autonomous individual, that everybody is their own person and you should question everything. You should accept nothing on authority, but you should always make up your own mind that you are who you say you are. Nobody else has the right to tell you otherwise. And that obviously has significant benefits in some areas, but it's a very, very dangerous tool. And it has, amongst other things, led our entire culture and, uh, you know, whole, whole continents uh, away from uh, any, any sort of uh, obedience to or even respect for the word of God. Because, I mean, God's just an authority, another authority. And, and, and if, unless we can persuade, unless I can persuade you that God God, you should take God seriously. Well, you don't, you know, until I persuade you, why should you? Um, in other words, to put it pretty bluntly, if it'd been us living there in the plane of Sheena at the time, we wouldn't have done any better. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, now, what are they trying to do apart from make a name for themselves? We're still in verse four. Build a tower into the heavens. But what is the thing that they're aiming to achieve by it? To be bigger and better than anybody else. No. What's it say there? <clears throat> they want to make a name for themselves um, in order to avoid being dispersed over the face of the earth. Okay, so this is their way of avoiding mm. dispersing. In other words... They are creating name for themselves, and one of the things they're therefore doing, they're trying to create an identity that will bind them together. And this is a really fundamental aspect of, of humanity, which is actually a very good thing. It's not only a good thing, but it is, it is in many ways a, a real reflection of who we are as people creating God's image, which is that humans are communal beings. Now, there are animals that are communal as well, uh, live in herds and so on. But humans are particularly communal creatures. And this makes perfect sense already in the light of God's declaration that he made us in his own image, given that God himself is a community of being. That is to say, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, is God himself, in himself, the Godhead, is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal community of held together by a common name, by a common substance, if you like, common being, um, held together by a bond of love. I, I speak very loosely here, so if you, you know, if you want to take me to task for not being as precise as I should be, uh, you know, I, I beg your pardon already. Of course, you know, God doesn't need holding together. There is but one God, and He is He is one. But the 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 purpose. My point here is that God, you know, what what is if you like the 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 sort of, uh, the, the characteristic of of nature? What is it in the nature of God that upholds the unity of God in three persons? And we are told that God is love. 
And community is an expression of love, essentially, where people live together with a concern that goes beyond themselves, mm. of mutual service and mutual care, of sharing, of self-giving, of limiting your own rights for the benefit of others and for the benefit of, of, of the community and so on. That is what community is. There's no community without some degree of love. And I love, obviously, here doesn't mean uh, fond feelings, but rather an, an attitude and, and a way of being that, uh, that looks out for the interests of others and not just for your own interests. This is why all communities, and this, this is true also of animal communities, is all communities have sanctions. So that those whose actions are not, do not benefit but harm the community are sanctioned. You know, you, you, you watch a nature documentary about, I don't know, wild dogs or something, and there's some young, young male that tries to kind of uh, take a rule, uh, rule the roost and, and, and puts the whole community in danger. And either mother or a bit later on, the alpha male comes and just gives them the proper old nip down the hind leg and says, get back in your place, boy. And, and so that otherwise this will not end well. This is why, I mean, whether we don't necessarily approve of the methods, but this is why from time to time uh, the British Army in, in, the, in the World Wars, for example, will shoot deserters. Um, you know, uh, who was it? Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember the name of the British uh, uh, general who was shot in the Seven Years' War. Was it Bing? And uh, Voltaire, the French philosopher, kind of rightly commented that the that the uh, British, the British, he he lost he lost a, a, a Menorca, <coughs> he was defending Menorca and lost it to the French. And then Voltaire kind of commented on it that he was shot to encourage the others, to encourage them not to not to lose any more Menorcas and Mallorcas. Uh, you know, this is that the when when people act in a way that damages the community, then there must be a sanction to build together. In other words, to, so that we all remain focused on. The common good but now the question is where should our what is the thing that holds the community together any community and the answer the first answer always is a common identity you know we identify with one another this is why things like nationality actually matter this is why i think you know family identifying your family you know um i, I remember talking with a uh <clears throat> with a, a grandmother uh, who who herself had uh, several children and and then had lots of grandchildren and uh, the conversation was about whether this whether she liked children and her answer was well not particularly <laughs> and she said, and said well why do you have so many children I said oh I love my children <laughs> I just don't like children you know well said when I had lots of children. You know, other other people always shoving their babies in my arms, and I said, "I don't care. It's <laughs> my child. You know, nothing to do with me. I'm not interested in your children." Um, you know, this idea that you know the thing that binds us together is what you know our common identity, and it's really important. It's really really important. Now, the question, and it's not a bad thing. It's just a reality. Now, here's the question: What is the identity that holds us together as humanity? Why should I care what happens? You know, let's say that, you know, you know, we pray for the Uyghur in China at the moment, you know, being, you know, there's a genocidal oppression against them. Uh, you know, it's the kind of all, all very 1930s and 40s Nazi stuff, uh, uh, camps and, 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 and sterilizations and all sorts of horrible slave labor. 
Why should I care? It's a very long way from here. I've never met anybody who's a Uyghur. And I'm not very likely to visit that region very soon. Why, what do I care whether they're being, you know, pampered or whether they're being murdered? Because um, Uyghur are made in the image of God as the Finnish and the Irish and the English are. But that's our common identity. Exactly. And this is why <clears throat> the Babel experiment is doomed to fail on its own terms. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. The very project is has is basically has placed a massive load of dynamite under itself. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the moment we do that, we are then going to end up with saying, actually, no, no, we don't like that. And we I think the name we are making for ourselves here, and let's not build a tower, let's build a tunnel. No, 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 not a tunnel, let's build a boat. And we end up, and the, the dispersal of the nations, the seeds of the dispersal are already in the project itself, where people begin to say, well, like, actually, we are going to make of ourselves who we are. When all along, all along, they were who they were because of the grace of God. And this is why, for human life on earth, community, you know, nationality and ethnicity and language and customs and culture and family and all those things that bond people together. Just a moment, Rosemary, I can see you. Uh, all those things that bond people together are tremendously important and valuable for holding human society on earth together. But every single one of them, every one of them, language, culture, family, customs, nationality, ethnicity, all those things are trumped by our identity as children of God. In Christ, there is no East, no West. You know, there's, there simply isn't, there is no such thing as English Christianity and Finnish Christianity and African theology and, and, and whatever. There's just one God and his one people. Yes, Rosemary. They knew then that they would have been dispersed and they were trying to, they they were already aware that they had to go places. Uh, it's more likely they, they saw that there's a danger that unless they have something to hold them together, they will end up be dispersing. Right. Unless there's something that binds them together. And they decide to bind themselves together by this construction project. And again, they, as I said, there's this sarcastic comment already about the fact that they, you know, they, they were using bricks and bitumen. Um, not exactly a first-class building material. And you can kind of see the, see the way this is going to go. <coughs> um, <laughs> now, where is this tower going to go? Up into the heavens. Up into the heavens. Why heavens? Maybe they feel that's where the power is. Yeah, because that's where, that's where God is. Yeah. Ready for the next joke. This might not be kind of uh, stand-up stand up circuit material, but it's pretty good anyway. Verse 5. Mm. Lord came down to see the tower city and the tower. So they were building a tower up to heaven. God had to come down and say, oh, you're looking down. So where's this, where's this tower of yours that's supposed to reach you up to heaven? In other words, pathetic. <laughs> They're piddling little tower. And God comes down to have a look at it. 
you know, it's almost like, you know, when you're watching something like a bug's life, you know, if you've seen a Disney bug, you know, bug's life, you know, kind of everything looks terribly, terribly impressive thing. And then all you need to do is just zoom out a little bit and you realize actually, you know, you're just amongst the blades of grass there. Mm-hmm. And so from God's perspective, this is just a, a you know, a, like children at play, sand pit tower. Mm. And Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, go on. Uh, no, I'm just thinking out loud. Um, I'm just getting that image in, the, in, in Revelation about at the very end, God brings down this city from heaven. The new Jerusalem comes down. It's as if here in the Old Testament, man thinks, I'm going to build a city and I'll reach God. And yeah. God says, well, actually, if you wait till the end of the story, you'll discover I'm actually going to bring this city down to you. You perfectly anticipated what I was just about to say. Oh, sorry. Which is that here we see for the first time, really, really explicit and clear terms, the difference between man-made religion and the true, true uh, life uh, as children of God. This, the sinful man is forever building towers, you know, cities and towers, you know, building upwards. Every false religion, and in fact, almost every every um, uh, also heresy of Christianity and the false teaching Christianity consists in one way or another of taking the initiative with regard to God. Um, I was in a church building not that long ago, which had in, this, in the vestry, they had a, uh, a framed A4 piece of paper, which is our mission statement. And the opening sentence of that mission statement was, our community is founded on worship and praise. And I winced. Now, why did I wince? Worship and praise of who? That too. There's a more fundamental thing that made me go, ooh. Made my ears kind of twist a little bit. My sighting got worse for a moment when I saw that. Is our community, that is to say, is the Christian community, is the church founded on worship and praise? No, on God. No. It's on what God has done. Mm. Yeah, what uh, Pastor William Whedon, who many, I think most of you saw in, the, in our pastoral pastor, and he, he always, he, he gave me the, uh, talked about the difference between M-shaped worship and W-shaped worship. Does our worship begin yeah. like an M at the bottom go up and then god responds or is it the other way around god speaks and we respond and of course christian in the christian faith the bible reveals a god who acts first that's why we begin with creation you know i believe in god the father maker of heaven and earth and that had to be by divine initiative because we weren't there to be initiating it by definition god acts we respond he comes down and then we speak back to him and we speak back to him to quote uh the first uh, pre- uh, precept of Westfield House uh, Seminary, so, you know, that God speaks and we listen and then we speak back to God the words that he has first spoken to us. And, you know, Christian worship is it's a God descending, not with us ascending. And we see this all the time. When God wants to make... Um, uh, make contact with mankind he comes down he comes to the burning bush he comes down to jacob uh, in bethel he um 
as, as he comes down to Mount Sinai to speak uh, with Moses. God descends with him. And then he says, build me a tabernacle. And that's the place where you will meet. Me. And where's the tabernacle? It's not up in the clouds. It's right down here on earth. You go to the tabernacle and God descends. He comes and then we respond to him. And this is how it goes. And then when God says, okay, we're going to fix this once for all, for all time, what happens? God comes down and takes up our flesh. And there is worship and there's praise, but there's a worship and praise of him who came into, the, into our midst. This is why our worship in, in church also consists not of finding ways to ascend into heaven or, or meeting God in the air. And this is, I mean, I don't know if uh, David and Cynthia wants to comment on this, but this is kind of one of the big differences between your kind of uh, typical charismatic style of worship, which is essentially consists of the spirits kind of our spirits uh, sort of like joining the Holy Spirit in the air, essentially, um, uh, as opposed to simply con God concretely coming down to us in actual human words in, in, in the uh, sacraments, which are tangible and in the human community. I don't know. If, is, that a, is that a fair depiction? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we've discovered, mm -hmm. I know I've said it before, in, in, in Lutheranism, what I've really liked is the whole thing of divine service. Mm -hmm. um, when I was younger, I used to think divine service sounded the most dusty, boring thing ever. But then I heard this Lutheran pastor said, if you think about it, it's the divine is serving you, uh, and that's Christ is serving you with his gifts uh, located in the word and sacraments that all kind of clicked into my head straight away and I thought yep that's what I want and I think when we were in a, in a Pentecostal kind of environment it was very much um, experience that you kind of move from the praise songs to the worship songs and it's it's there's a whole lot of emotion mixed up with it and the, the aim is to kind of get emotionally caught up with the Lord um, that's, that's a rough kind of way of expressing it. But really, what, what, what true worship is, is actually coming and receiving as a beggar that Christ has offered himself through these gifts of word and sacrament. Uh, and and, and that's, that's a big difference. Cynthia and I both noticed that. Um, so I don't know if that answers what you're saying. Yeah, and I've realized, I, didn't, I don't want to... Um can misrepresent uh, uh, other people, but, you know, that's, that's what I want to, I thought I just checked that I hadn't yeah. seen that was yeah. quite fair. But so, you know, this God comes down and he doesn't wait for us to find our way back up. And what these people, you know, the, the people of Babel, they're trying to, they're trying to establish their being by, they, you know, we're going to make contact with heavens. And all, and, and in fact, what they needed was for God to come down to them. And, to have their name not in what they can make of themselves, but to have a name which God had given them. And remember, he's noticed how they're nameless here. They're entirely nameless. You know, they don't have a they don't have a name. There's a place, uh, and then they, there's a name that comes afterwards, which is not very uh, which is not very complimentary. So they themselves are currently nameless. And now God responds to this idolatrous attempt to make of themselves something as opposed to allowing themselves to be that uh, which uh, they are by God's grace, the Lord. And again, Lord, there is, is Yahweh, the name of God said. And here we have another one of this of God, God talking to himself moments, just like we have in Genesis 
uh, uh, one and two. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, one and two. You have this. God said to Himself, "Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do." Now, this is not at all dissimilar from what God says at the end of the fall in chapter three, uh, where God said, "Behold." Same word. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, God sent him out of the garden Eden to work the ground. So this is kind of God says, okay, this is how going to start. <laughs> What's going to come next? And so what God does, is God disperses them. And by dispersing them, he weakens them. And the Romans were very good at this. Their, their, their Roman Empire was run on the very simple basic a, ba a basic principle of divide and conquer, or divide and rule. The idea being that if you've got two neighboring tribes that have been conquered by Rome, they might not like Rome, but they like dislike each other even more, and therefore they were never going to uh, unite themselves against uh, the empire because there's no way. I remember I was in a meeting of clergy about, ooh, or theologians rather, about 15 years ago, And there's talk of trying to pull all the this, this small number of confessional Lutherans left in Scandinavia uh, together. You know, let's work together rather than have little, you know, little groups here and there scattered together. And one of the older, older Lutheran pastors said, well, that's never going to work. So you could have Finns and Swedes working together. You can Norwegians and Danes working together, but you can never have, you, you could never have all the, all the Scandinavians working together because they just, Thankfully, that it, history has shown, I mean, times passed on, and he, his pessimism was misplaced. But this sort of idea that uh, you know, if you if you split people and make them speak different languages and, and kind of give them different identities, then they're not going to band together and cause even more harm. Mm. And so, this division of the people, which in itself is not a good thing, is in fact just like the driving of Adam and Eve out of the garden. Though it comes as a punishment or a consequence of, of sin, it is in fact, at the same time, uh, shows that it's, it's an, uh, it has an aspect of gift in it. God, by punishing humanity, prevents it from getting even into worse trouble than it already is. And this is how it all works. I mean, this is what we are, where, you know, the, the Bible repeatedly, like the Proverbs, for example, it, it, is, it, it teaches us to rejoice when God disciplines us. And if God, you know, if God takes his rod to us and says, oh, good, you know, he, he still cares. He still cares. And he wants he wants to uh, prevent us from falling to greater uh, sin. Um, and so verse seven, he goes, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so this is Rosemary, your earlier comment at the very beginning this is precisely the point. God wants to confuse them. He wants to separate them so that they are no longer able to cooperate uh, again. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. It was never completed. In other words, now we kind of have, here's the, here's the kind of nuclear story of what we read in the previous chapter of the dispersion uh, of, of the nations. Now, how, how, these, how this sort of works in terms of timing, um, as I said earlier, isn't clarified. We've got some ideas here, but not very, uh, not very much uh, at all. 
and therefore its name, the name of the city, was called Babel. Uh, do you know how Americans pronounce that? Babel. Yes, because the word Babel, in fact, comes from uh, from the word Babel. Like a babbling brook. Exactly. Well, yeah, or a babbling idiot, more likely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, the Hebrew word here uh, sound is, is, you know, if you, uh, not looking at the letters on the page, but listening to it being read, it sounds exactly the same as uh, confuse. Mm. The word Babel or Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for uh, confused. And that's the idea. Now, uh, the, here we have, if you like, the explanation, if you like, the, the, the grand explanation for why we have all these different languages and nations in the world. Questions, comments? It means God was multilingual, wasn't he? Uh, God is not multilingual. God is all-wise and all-knowing. God doesn't require language. He made those languages to give to people, though. Uh, again, I don't think that's what it means. Um, it, I don't think it's something that God created language, but languages create and develop. And what I, I don't think we ought to um, necessarily assume that this is kind of uh, uh, like a one-off moment where, you know, one Monday morning, the guys go to the work, working site and Joe suddenly can't understand a word of what Bill is saying because, they, you know, it's complete nonsense. Uh, but rather, it's, it's a sort of... Uh, uh, like a broad explanation of, of the fact that this is where the dispersal of nations begins, the uh, the uh, um, the confusion of languages, what the origin of it is. Um, languages develop by all by themselves. We, I mentioned this very briefly last time, but you know, if you there's a there's a if you if you use YouTube ever and kind of watch videos, there's I can't remember what this what it's called, but you might be able to find it. But there's a there's some uh, young chap archaeologist is who's made this video um, where he reads, it's about 10 minutes long, and he, he kind of tries, he's, uh, reads a text uh, and in, in different languages, what English would have sounded like an accent, you know, if, if you're in London in different times, how it would have sounded. I mean, it starts in the 15th century or 14th century and up to, up to the 20th century. And, you know, it's, it's just English. Well, sort of. But I personally, I, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I really struggled to understand hardly anything that was being said five, six hundred years ago. In mm. Shakespeare's time, you read Shakespeare, you know, I can read Shakespeare and, you know, if I go slow enough, I understand what's on the page. But when it was being read in that sort of pronunciation that Shakespeare might have recognized, it was a lot harder. So language is just kind of, the, you know, when people lose contact with one another, language is naturally gradually diverge and develop. I mean, English, once upon a time, you know, when, when the Nor Norwegians came over here, they understood the English and vice versa. You know, the Norsemen, like, Norsemen's language was similar enough to what's being spoken in Anglo-Saxon Britain that they could understand one another. And I don't know, when you last tried to speak with a Norwegian, speaking, oh, I tried to understand a Norwegian speaking Norwegian, but I suspect that uh, most of you would have struggled. And a word here or there. And so this is just how it happens. So, uh, yeah. So we don't, we don't, all we need is dif uh, distinctions and differences and, and lack of contact. You know, as languages develop, they develop differently. And uh, 
I remember speaking with an elderly pastor who, his retirement went to serve a, a, a large Finnish community in Canada. There's a town in Canada called Thunder Bay in uh, Western Ontario, which has a very large Finnish population that arrived there after the Second World War. So until, you know, until recently, they had two Finnish-speaking churches, they had a Finnish radio station, Finnish newspaper, all sorts of things. Uh, you could get by in Finnish quite well. And they had the habit of kind of luring uh, retired clergy from Finland to go and serve those Finnish congregations um, for a year or two. And he went and he came back with all sorts of funny stories about the kind of Finnish that they speak there. Uh, because they picked up English loan words from the surrounding in a way that fin- Finns in Finland don't. And then they use some Finnish words that had fallen out of use in Finland de- decades ago, but they still, you know, they came over with them and they, they still use them and that sort of thing. And it was kind of becoming a very different dialect. Yeah. Just like if you go to Australia, you know, you, it, you know, we, it's, it's clearly the same language, but, you know, when I first came across the word billabong, I needed to ask <laughs> translation, even though I think my English is reasonably decent these days. <laughs> it means a pool, doesn't it? Or a water or a lake. The fact that you say it means suggests that it's already a kind of different language. Mm. And, and some countries um, uh, still maintain the old English. Like um, in parts of America we've been to, um, they use faucet for a tap. Mm-hmm. Oh, a yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, American is in many ways an archaic and older form of English. Yeah. Not a newer form of English. No. Yeah, you're right. Oh, come see us now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been listening to what you're saying, Tapani, and I just, uh, I see these scriptures and I just think I see myself in them. You know, that it's just all about self-preservation, that I'm no different to these uh, the earth as it was at that time that really you're wanting to better yourself preserve yourself and yet god and his mercy comes and uh, intervenes in your life so that he can uh, accomplish what his will is rather than the will of man and i think you know i've never really read the scriptures uh, these these verses with that understanding um but i just you know, it's as though nothing new is under the sun, uh, and yet God and His mercy still comes mm-hmm. and uh, you know intervenes and draws us back to Himself. Yeah, all the time, all the time, yeah. and this is what we're heading to. Uh, so next is as we kind of take this, sort of, you know, this is like an interlude mm-hmm. in the list of you know the, the the descendants of Noah. We kind of take you know there's a minor interlude for Nimrod, the the mighty hunter. And now we've got the, uh, you know, this longer interlude of um, of uh, Shem uh, of uh, the Tower of Babel, but you're absolutely right. the The story of the, you know, I, I said at the beginning, the story of of humanity and what go, you know, what happens in the world is really told by two opposing forces: human sin and divine grace. And Human sin is forever trying to undo and, and, and to destroy what God has created. And God, divine grace is constantly mending and gathering, uh, gathering together things that human sin has broken. And but so we, we have, just to, just to, just to finish this, you know, that this here starts, if you like, a great motion, which comes to its preliminary conclusion with the victory of divine grace on the day of Pentecost. And the great, the great uh, uh, gift of the day of Pentecost is that the apostles preach a gospel 
and you have a gathering of all these dispersed nations, and you've got just a small number of them, but we've got people from Rome and from, if you use modern terminology, Libya and uh, you know Iran, Iraq, Armenia, all over the uh, you know Turkey, Greece, you know the cult, the much of the then known world are all gathered together, and they all hear in their own language the mighty works of God. And how Jesus sends the disciples to all nations. That the gospel is reaching out to all nations. And the gospel and, and the great scandal of the gospel that, you know, we, in our Bible study on Acts, in the, over the, this past year we've been studying Acts, has been the, the thing that comes to the focus all the time and which really dominates much of the New Testament is the whole question, well, what about the Gentiles? That Jesus came to save Israel, great, you know, everybody's in favor of that. But what about all this Gentile? And the great scandal for the Jews and a great marvel for everyone and a fantastic gift for us Gentiles is that the gospel is for the Gentiles as Gentiles. They don't have to join the nation of Israel. They don't have to join that community and become identified with them through circumcision and keeping of the laws anymore. God reach, reaches out to them and he gathers them into his one church, into the body of Christ as they are. And so he creates a new community which doesn't have to speak the same language or be together all in one place or to have any any kind of creation of their own. The thing that the, the monument that holds them together is the body of Christ, which God has, if you like to put it in, in slightly slightly sort of strange terms, that God has has built a tower down from or a ladder down from heaven. You think of Jacob's ladder. You know, there's a ladder that descends from heaven, and that ladder is the body of Christ, into which we're gathered, and in which we are already partakers of the heavenly things. So all the things that the people of Babel achieve, tried to achieve and failed, and all the things that went wrong as a result, are undone by Jesus, who gathers us into one community. And the language that we share in common is not any human language, but it's the gospel. It's the mm. confession of, of and this is why Christians have been translating the Bible since the earliest days. Now we already have, you know, there are already in the in the second and third centuries there are translations of the Bible of and, and the writings of the New Testament uh, into all sorts of languages. We have Coptic, uh, uh, sorry, uh, we've got Ethiopian translations of of the New Testament. We've got Egyptian ones. We've got Armenian ones. We've got Syriac ones. We've got all sorts of ancient translations of the Bible because this is our language. Now, in all our different languages. The thing that binds it together is the word of God now. And the tower that breaches to heaven between us and, and, and on earth and God in heaven is the body of Christ. And that's the penultimate thing. We are living in that penultimate, penultimate Pentecostal. That's what it means to be Pentecostal, really, is to be part of this gift. We are all Pentecostal in that sense. Where is it fulfilled? Well, you read uh, uh, Revelation 7. It describes the heavenly coast or heavenly company, kind of, or the... the, the um, the multitude of all the saved, of which we already remember, and we got the 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, and an innumerable multitude from every tribe, language, and nation, all gathered together around the throne of God and the Lamb. This is the reality of the church, and this, is, this will be the ultimate reality when, as you, and this is where I come back to your comment earlier, David, that we are promised also in the book of Revelation, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We don't go up to heaven, heaven comes down to us. Not only now, but also at the last coming. We are not told that we will go to Jesus at the end of the world. No, we're told that Jesus will come back to us at the end of the world. So this, the, the motion, if you like, the, the rebellious upward motion 
of mankind is constantly countered by the, the, the gracious and saving downward motion of God uh, in his salvation. And that will be brought to fruition at our salvation, where all these nations, languages, tribes, all these different groups, including all the various tribes of Israel, are just one. And the thing that holds us together is the throne of God and the Lamb. And this is why our Christian identity must, however painful it sometimes can be, it must trump every other identity. It's more important than our nationality. It's more important even if, you know, if we have to choose than our natural family, our biological family. You know, Jesus, who's my mother? You know, who's my mother? Who's my brother, sister? Whoever keeps the word, keeps, you know, here's my, keeps the word of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. So that's the kind of God's, God's counteraction to the rebellion of Babel. Any final thoughts before we move on to the remaining remainder of the chapter, which is much longer, but uh, much quicker? Yes, David. Yeah, it's, it's just something maybe um, if you can just open up a little bit more. Um, you mentioned about judgment and Cynthia mentioned something as well. Um, God acts in a sense in a judgment um, to disperse the people, and I think in order to save them, to save these people from themselves, from the consequences of their sins, so they kind of leave off building this Tower of Babel. It's it's a kind of a that is a ruined project, and they've kind of moved on. But that's the work of God. That's in the sense of judgment of God. And I'm just wondering, um, it's an act of grace, as far as I can see. God's just saying, "I'm going to save you sinners from yourself. Um, you're not going to get get more embroiled in, in your own." Um, misadventures and I'm going to disperse you. Do you think that we can say that about all of God's judgments? They're all born out of his grace and love for fallen humanity to save ourselves from our own sin. I don't think I'd go that far because of course there's the ultimate judgment of God. Yeah. There, you know, when God felt hard in Pharaoh's heart, there was nothing very gracious left for Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, but this is why the Bible often speaks of God's discipline. You know, judgment, uh, judgment in a sense, is, is uh, when it becomes final, it's irrevocable. But God disciplines us and he, he lets us suffer the consequences of our sins. And he, lets, he also takes punitive action that essentially also protects us or, or, uh, from further damage. <coughs> like, you know, if you're going to live sinfully, at least let's not make sure that that sin isn't eternal uh, and so no, no more tree of life. So yes, so God frequently, he allows things to happen to us. He, he, he allows us to suffer consequences of our sins or punishment even for our sins in a way that might lead us to repentance or at least shield us from further harm. So maybe discipline is a better word than um, judgment. It, it, well, the purpose of discipline, the difference between discipline and punishment, of course, is that discipline is instructive. You know, you, you sanction or you, you punish a person in order that they might learn, in order to improve them. Um, mm. This is why, like parents, parents punishing their children, if that punishment isn't disciplinary, then it's, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always for the good of, and God is our Heavenly Father. So he disciplines us and he, he allows us to suffer in order that we might be um, turned away from sin. Thank you. Then we get the final list of names in, in this 
part of Genesis. Uh, the generations of Shem. Now, we already had a generations of, of the sons of Noah, and we, now we are to drilling down to the uh, line of Shem. And these are unlike chapter 10, which really kind of is a, is a list of the nations descended from Noah. Now, in chapter 11, we get the actual bloodline from Shem uh, down uh, with... Uh, Oh, sorry. Uh, with um, various, uh, you know, uh, ages of people and 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 years uh, as well. And what we will see, I mean, again, I I, I decided not to. I could, I you know, there are you could put this in a table. You can kind of see exactly how how these things uh, work in terms of the kind of the um, the descendants and how long each lives and the overlaps and all those sort of things. You can you can if you if you if you're interested in that. It won't take you very long to construct that uh, yourselves. But let's uh, read through them. Any ah. fancy lots of Hebrew names? <laughs> Last time yeah, you no. uh, Cynthia. Okay, thank you, David. I'll go. Yeah. You want, you want to go? No. no. Okay. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Apashad for 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived for 35 years, he fathered Sheila. And Apashad lived after he fathered uh, Sheila for 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When she Sheila had lived for 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Sheila lived after he fathered Eber for 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived for 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he had fathered Peleg for 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived for 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru for 209 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived for 32 years, he fathered Serog. And Ru lived after he fathered Serog for 207 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Serog had lived for 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Serog lived after he fathered Nahor for 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived for 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah for 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived for 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Thank you. So there we've got the line from uh, Shem all the way down to Abram and, <clears throat> and his um, uh, brothers. And here we, what we have here, and I'm not, I'm not going to, there's not much to say that unless you're really into the archaeology of names and, and, and years and so on, which I don't think is, is, is necessarily profitable for us all. Uh, now is that you just get, you see a couple of things there. First of all, you see that the shortening of man's life, as, as God had already said. So they, although they live long lives, they get shorter and shorter. But again, we are seeing here a direct line of descent. And that's really important. Direct line of descent uh, between uh, each of the descendants of Noah. And this links back, and I've said this umpteen times, I'll say it again, about the preservation of the promise of the seed of the woman, working down the generation. 
And so we can kind of trace our way from Abraham up to uh, up to uh, Shem, and therefore to Noah, and therefore to Adam himself, and therefore to Eve. Um, so that gives us that line all the way from Shem to Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, just a quick thing about the uh, the names and the um, the uh, both the spelling and the pronunciation of these names is always a little bit tricky because Hebrew has a completely different oh not complete but has a significantly different alphabet from the English alphabet. It looks completely different, but in the, also some of the sounds that it represents. Um, and so, for example, in verse twenty uh, sorry nineteen eighteen to twenty one, we've got this R E U character. Uh, which in Hebrew is roughly pronounced ra-u, ra-u. Uh, So how do you how do you try that in English? And and the answer is well, it sounds a bit like a character from Winnie the Pooh, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, so they, those are those, that's the kind of purpose. So, and in this in this process, what we move from uh, move to the, the we shift from primeval history to just history. Well, by the time we arrive at Abraham, all of a sudden the mist begins to lift and we begin to get detail and we begin to know an awful lot more. We'll go all this little periodic incidental kind of things that we get mentioned. And all of a sudden we get to the end of this and the story can really begin. It's like, you know, we have now got come from the first story, you know, Adam and Eve, then you go quickly fast forward, Noah. And now we fast forward with a tiny pause of Babel we pass forward now all the way to Abraham. Now we can really start telling the story. So it's like an interrupted story. Is in the kind of is we telling the story of God's promises and His faithfulness, but we've just skipped over. It's a bit like the children's rhyme. You know, how, you know, how, quickest way to count a hundred is you know one, two, skip a few, ninety nine, hundred, and and it's a bit like you know history, a history by that method. Um. Let's read on. Who who likes to take on the remaining uh, remaining passage? We've only got a few verses left. The generation of terror. I'll read it. This is and the it. genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife is Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out <coughs> with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Thank you. So now we begin, as we begin to kind of, we, uh, kind of the, the story, the picture's slowing down now. We begin to get, uh, we get the immediate uh, precursor to the story of Abram here now. And we've got Terah's uh, three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Pharaoh's father, Lot now, and, and, and so on. Now the they are, if the Haran died in the presence of Israel, they're still in the place called Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another word for, they later on they call Babylonians. So this is modern money, this would be southern Iraq. 
not that far from the Gulf of Persia. So it's just up the river from the uh, Persian Gulf uh, in southern Iran. Now, if you uh, look at a map of the Middle East, if you've got a map in your Bible uh, somewhere of of that uh, whole region, kind of an Old Testament region, Mm -hmm. uh, you will see, let me just take my... Um, if you've got the uh, Black Reformation Bible, for mm-hmm. example, uh, you've got lots of maps in the back. And, and let me see if I can find them. There you go. And so if, if you look at the uh, the earliest ones, Map 1, World of the Patriarchs, page 1398. Other maps are available in other Bibles, but you, you should have in your Bible uh, various maps. So this is what it looks like in the uh, Reformation Bible, page one three nine eight. Yeah. Um. And uh, there you have the the uh, world of the patriarchs, as it's called, and you've got this is known as the fertile crescent. You've got in the bang in the middle of it all, you've got the Arabian Desert. And if you look at the Arabian Desert, you will notice that you've got a couple of tracks running across it, and that's about it. And the reason is that it's one of the most hostile places on Earth. Uh, even today, with modern, the modern vehicles and roads and things like that, if you start crossing it, you will want to be very careful to make sure that you've got food and drink with you. So mm-hmm. you break down. It's, it's just a really, really hostile place. And though it's the shortest route, east-west, it is not the one to be taken. Instead, the trouble, the trade routes went up. If you you see Ur of the Chaldeans there near the uh, Persian Gulf, you've got the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Euphrates is the one to the uh, west and the south uh, of the Tigris. And if you travel, uh, if you want to go from uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, say to uh, Canaan or to Egypt, the, by far the most sensible thing to do is to travel up the river. Mm-hmm. And then down the coast. That's known as the Fertile Crescent. So along the coast, you've got you've got plains, and because they're plains followed by mountains, there's plenty of rainfall. Rainfall, so it's a fertile place. And likewise, along the rivers, you've got plenty of water, and therefore it's fertile. And it remains the case today. Sure. And so you see that the the family they go up from Ur of Kildes, and they are they plan to travel to Canaan, which is where you know. Where Israel ends up, so they're on the left. But they, having got all the way up to Haran, they stop there, and the and the journey stops. So the Haran, and there's no explanation in the Bible of the coincidence mm. of the name of the city and the name of uh, the son of Terah who dies, and you know whether it's a case that. There, there was a place there already called Haran. It happened to be the same name, or whether there's a place there and it came to be known by his son, or whether they built a place. We just don't know. Uh, there isn't any. We, we have no information about this, but we know that they got all the way up there. But then, so they got up, but they never came down. Hmm. And uh, this geography explains a huge amount. If you're reading, for example, Isaiah and, and reading the prophets. It frequently talks about God, you know, the nations coming from the north, like the Assyrians coming from the north. And of course, the Assyrians aren't north of Israel. 
But if they want to come to Israel, they, ha- they will end up coming from the north by the time they get anywhere near Israel. And so that's where we get to in the uh, early days. Um, and, and it brings us to the end of chapter 11. It brings us back. Basically, we have now come to the end of the prologue to, uh, to the story of Abraham and what happens thereafter. And, and this is really, if you remember when we started the whole thing, however long ago it was now, that the history, the early history of Genesis is really given as a, it's the kind of a, the, all of Genesis really is like a historical preamble to the law. The, the vast bulk of the five books of Moses consist of the giving of the law. But the Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is the historical introduction to it. This is this is how the law, why and how the law came to be given. And the primeval part, the kind of early chapters of Genesis, is the prologue, which then brings us to the beginning of the main thread of the story, which is God's dealings with Abraham and everything that flows from there, which then come bring, brings us ultimately to Mount Sinai. And the giving of the law. And here it ended. Apologies for the long phone call. It was something I had to answer at the time. Uh, not a problem. Apology happily accepted. Thank you. I, fi- I find the, um, the study, these studies up to chapter 11 um, excellent. And so thank you very much. It's just really. Um, you always leave these studies thinking, oh, I want to discover more. And that that's that's good. And so thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. So anyone got any any other questions? Anything anything about this text that you want to finally comment or ask about before we before we close for today? Well, all these uh where they say they've got other sons and daughters, they mm. don't say how many. Um these are they cousins that can produce children with other cousins or isn't it running like that? Where would they get all the other women to get all these children anyway? Oh, there are plenty of people. This is uh, uh, you asked me this last time. Do I know, the but um, yes, but it didn't. Well, the the answer is that we. This is not a list of everybody who ever lived or who was alive at the time. We are just following a particular line. So, if, no. for example, if you, if you went to my great grandfather and started listing, uh, you know, taking the line down to my son. Mm-hmm. Say to Daniel, then you would say, you know, he gave to you know he he had such and such a son and other sons and daughters, and then he that son had such and such a son, and then out of that came my father, who had me and other sons and daughters, and then there was me and I had Daniel and other sons and daughters. Now there are loads of other people around; we just haven't mentioned them. All right. So it's just we are following a particular line of people. That's all. Mm-hmm. There is. It doesn't in any way imply that there's nobody else around. All right. Have I otherwise stunned you into complete silence? Hmm. Well, in that case, we'll stop. The horse is not dead, but it's gone to sleep. So we'll leave it sleep and we shan't flog it. Um, <clears throat> I, I suppose the, the, the one question is, um, and you know, I, I, there, there are all sorts of things that, that we, we can do next. Uh, one, one question is, uh, do we do something entirely different for a change? Uh, or 
would there be uh, any significant demand for carrying on with the story from where we've left off? We've got, uh, we got another 39 uh, chapters left of Genesis uh, uh, to look at. So we could, we could carry on uh, simply with the story, you know, into the story of Abraham and so on, or we can, we can switch our focus somewhere else. Um, so anyone, if you have any strong opinions about that, if you don't have any strong opinions, that's fine. And, and I will just uh, make an executive decision, but uh, you're being consulted on it. The, the danger uh, <clears throat> of continuing on Genesis is once you finish Genesis, then you think, yeah, what happens after Genesis? Then you go into Exodus. Well, <laughs> that's, that's, you know there's no danger in that. It's just a feature. It's not a bug. <laughs> you'll, you'll be starting to go through the, the, whole, the whole of the Bible, uh, which will take you a long, long time, which will be that's excellent. Okay, well... God knows how long I've got. Say so that that that's not a, that's not a, that's not a problem as such. If if I manage to teach through the whole Bible, I think I ought to get mentioned in dispatches. Um, has anyone anyone else got an opinion? We can't do Revelation. I know I've mentioned it before. I know that that wasn't the question, and, and oh. that's not correct. Of course, we can do Revelation. It's just we haven't done it yet. No, uh, no. The question was: Has anyone got a strong feeling about whether we should carry on in Genesis? And that'll take the whole year, won't it, in Genesis, if we do that? You think a year's going to be enough? <laughs> well, no. I'm, I'm being generous. Yeah, exactly. you, no, you're not being generous. This <laughs> year. Yes. Well, it's entirely, I, I say, it's, I, 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 I detect a hint of, uh, are you sure that's wise, Pastor, in your question? <laughs> uh, but, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't get the. Yeah, I, I would like to continue on, but I'm equally happy to go with whatever you think is right, Pastor yeah. Tapper. Okay, well, we'll we'll see. I'll I'll give it some thought. Since nobody's yeah. a very strong opinion, so I'll I'll start uh, flicking coins and see how they what the tally is by by next week. But uh, I will let you know uh, one way or another. But uh, thank you for uh, for your patience thus far in in uh, in in our study and. Uh, uh, thanks be to God that he, he continues to speak to us through these old and sometimes very strange texts. Shall we close with prayer? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your faithfulness in making promises and keeping them without fail. Thank you that you have preserved for us your word. And even though the sin of man and our sin is forever fighting against you and, and uh, undermining and distorting, your purposes. You powerfully correct us with your gracious gift. So we pray that you like, would continue to work in our lives and the lives of our church, life of our church, uh, to bring about your gracious purposes in bringing salvation to us and to all people. Preserve us in your grace and in a life lived for your glory. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Amen.